0: This is The Hidden Why Podcast, episode 594 with Michael
1: Youseem. Leadership makes a difference. It especially makes a difference when the world is changing.
0: G'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Hidden Why Podcast. Great to have you here with me today for this really exciting, energized, informed interview with Michael Youseem. Michael has a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge in the areas of leadership, change and management and in this episode he shares so much grand insight like I took so many notes um, and took so much away from this interview myself. We talk about um, defining leadership, what is leadership and what role does leadership play in our lives, both our professional lives and our personal lives we talk about the defining qualities of leadership, what makes a great leader. And then we look into how leadership is developed. And Michael really clarifies everything so clearly with great stories, great explanations, really putting things into context. And then we put um, a wrap on this interview with a discussion around his newest book that he's co-authored with a few other authors. It's called Go Long why long-term thinking is your best ter- short-term strategy uh, it's a really interesting read i'll stick the link in the show notes um, but an interesting part of our conversation there as well guys thank you for tuning into this episode with michael you and myself uh, going head-to-head about leadership guys we are the greatest leaders in our life there's a lot of great takeouts in this episode i hope you enjoy let me know what you think jump onto the and connect with me there
1: thank you G'day, Mike. Welcome to the Hidden One Podcast. Great to have you here with me today. Uh, Lee, great to be here. Thank you for having me on. All the way from Philadelphia. Uh, Indeed. The city of brotherly love and sisterly affection just outside of New York City. (laughs) Nice one.
0: So, Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you're currently doing. I know you've just launched a new book, which I am eager to delve into. I have read it as well. Uh, and certainly would highly recommend it to the audience. Uh, But that's really where I want to take the topic of conversation today. So, yeah, give us a little bit of a background.
1: Yeah, a little bit of a context, and then we'll jump into it. I teach at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. We go back to uh, basically 1741. Our founding father, Benjamin Franklin, got us going. Uh, The business school at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School, uh, brings in about 10,000 people a year, mid-career, uh, we've got about 5,000 students, and pretty much for all the above, all those uh, all those groupings, for the last 15 years now, we have insisted that we provide a good opportunity class-wise, program-wise, for people to think about strengthening their leadership. Some people, of course, take the view, and it's a widely held view, that uh, leadership is either uh, it's natural or it's nothing. You either have it or you don't. Uh, but we take the um, uh, parallel view that, uh, that that is true. Some people have a head start by virtue of birth or maybe just genetics, but everybody in, uh, in a disciplined way can uh, learn to strengthen their leadership. And with that in mind, we did write the, uh, the book, Go Long.
0: Okay, fantastic. So just on that, on that note of leadership, let's start there. Um, so how would you define a successful leader?
1: Many definitions out there. The one that I think works best for me, and and, I use this in the classroom and in programs that we do, actually, not only in the U.S., but around the world as well, which is to think of leadership as a value-add moment or a value-add opportunity. You're given a job, uh, maybe entry-level, maybe more senior-level. You might be running uh, a division of a hospital. It could be a community foundation, maybe in city politics maybe in private enterprise, when you take that job, Lee, you've got uh, the powers of the office. You've got a budget, maybe not huge, but you've got one. You've got your duties laid out in your job description. And a way to think about leadership is what do you add personally to that formal job? At the end of the day, when you leave it, a good question to ask, I ask this of myself and the people I work with, what have you added that was not there before in terms of moving the needle, maybe changing how the organization operates. That doesn't say anything about what it takes to lead, but it is a working definition of what it means to lead anything.
0: Yeah, I really like that. That's that's very simple, um, and it's a good way to think about it, Uh, certainly if you are in a leadership role. So let's delve into what it takes to be a good leader. I know this is uh, certainly an area of your expertise. So what are some of the keys
1: to being a successful leader? Yeah, well, a good, uh, almost a preliminary kind of a a platform question to start with is when does anybody's leadership, your leadership, my leadership, anybody who might be listening, when does their leadership, as just defined, make greatest difference or have largest impact? And everybody has a a thought or two on that. They've seen uh, prime ministers or, in our case, presidents come and go. Some days they make a difference, some days they don't. And a pretty good summary of a lot of research on this is that individuals, you, me, anybody that's tuned to this, into this broadcast, uh, our, our value add is greatest when the world around us is uncertain and changing, when life is predictable, uh, relatively uh, secure, and, and, and kind of, we kind of know where we're going. We can make a difference, but we make a smaller difference than when life is unhinged or turned upside down. Many of your uh, people uh, listening here no doubt struggled through the crisis of 08-09. We certainly did here in the U.S. as banks went, uh, many banks went uh, belly up here. And in that kind of a period, uh, it's kind of an obvious statement, we all look to those uh, responsible for the organization. How the heck are we going to get out of this mess? So that said, It points to the future in the following specific sense, Uh, given how markets are changing, how everything's become a little bit more global in in recent years. Political insecurities are are large. We worry these days a lot about um, the U.S. relations with China, as I know Australia does, too. And given all that, uh, we better get the leadership formula. Whatever it is, uh, we better get it right. And then that turns to what is what are the defining qualities, if you will, of mm. getting it right. And again, we can look at great leaders in history, uh, Mahatma Gandhi of India, Mother Teresa of uh, India. Uh, we can look at, uh, in our case, uh, Martin Luther King, civil rights leader, uh, Nelson Mandela of South Africa, and others. And one conclusion that emerges is that uh, there is no silver bullet. There's no single quality like charisma that makes a difference. And in fact, I've worked on this for a while and have pretty much come up what for me is an irreducible list of about 15 separate capacities, all vital, none sufficient. And I tend to group them onto what I call a leader's checklist, just like a firefighter's checklist before you go into a burning building, got to make certain your respirator is on. You've got the right equipment around you. You know what chemicals may be inside the burning structure. Well, the same thing here. Or if you're taking off in Qantas, uh, you, the pilot does have to go through a pre-flight checklist. Yeah. And the arg- uh, the argument I would make, uh, very simply put, is that we need to go through our own personal leader's checklist uh, if we're going to lead anybody anywhere. And at the top of that list, I'll, I'll just uh, get you give you a couple items to kind of bring it out. We won't go through, obviously, all 15 because it's got complexity to it, but you need to know where you're going. Call that a vision. You've got to think and act strategically. um, Otherwise, you're not going to be able to enable that vision. And then you need to honor the room, a politician's phrase for saying that when you work with other people, you need to frequently acknowledge how important they are, how vital they are to where you're going. And then a, a fourth element, I'll just put a phrase on it, You need to be very good at conveying your character. Well, who exactly are you? Everybody wants to know something about you, maybe where you were born, what your favorite sport might be or your preferred uh, music genre. But uh, you do need to bring yourself out. So, Lee, with all that said, the leader's checklist, 15 items, all pretty important. And maybe uh, somewhere on that list would be a couple words like uh, courage, emotional intelligence and the ability to decide decisively. I'll stop on that
0: do you have um a list of those those qualities that you that, you know the fifteen qualities on your website that, that we could get um, for the audience because that would be certainly a useful tool
1: uh I can, it's not on a website I can email it to you if you want to put it on your website it appears in a in a short book that I wrote a couple of years ago called the leaders checklist you can get that off uh, amazon oh, cool and and so and here's what I would suggest to you, I suggest this to myself, I suggest this to anybody who's interested in thinking of, well, what exactly should be on my own personal list? Unlike pilots who fly internationally, say, from one continent to another, who are required to go through a set pre-flight checklist, fuel, flight plan, weight. a surgeon in your local hospital, certainly in mine as well, these days, they are required to go through what they call a time-out. As the uh, as the patient is wheeled in on a gurney into the operating room, uh, still conscious, the surgeon has to identify that the patient is the right patient by uh, birth date and name. Uh, that we're going to uh, replace the left knee and not the right knee. We got the right blood type. It's a it's a pre-surgical checklist. It's called a timeout. Nineteen items are pretty typical on that. Yeah. Th- that also is mandated by the medical center or the hospital. When it comes to leadership, we all have to craft our own, and our own will depend on what exactly are we trying to lead. Is it a community group? Maybe a sports team? Maybe a class? Maybe a hospital? Maybe a foundation? And thus, while I think everybody's going to have a vision and thinking strategically on their list and communicating their character, uh, very good to leave open a couple other items that you really want to instruct yourself to be conscious of that are somewhat unique to the world you are in.
0: Fair enough, yeah. So looking at that, that checklist as it relates to your own uh, characteristics, upbringing, and also the environment that you are bringing that leadership to the table.
1: Yeah, it's a great way to put it. We're all unique. We're not, uh, we're not flying for Qantas, or in our case, maybe United Airlines, uh, which gives us flexibility, but also yeah. a bigger personal obligation to make certain we know what our own leader's checklist ought to be.
0: And I think, you know, in the past when I've done something similar to this, uh, I'll talk to, you know, guests like yourself that have a lot of uh, experience and knowledge on leadership. What I've seen, you know, in reflection in my own style is certain elements that I'm stronger in and certain elements that certainly I probably don't bring forward enough when I'm in that leadership opportunity.
1: Lee, you make a great point with that. And let me just draw it out very briefly. If leadership for a few people is natural, but for certainly for me and most of the people I work with, it's not something you are given at birth or developed in early childhood. Then if you construct your leader's checklist, I need to be emotionally intelligent. I need to inspire people. A, a couple more items on that checklist. But we're not very good at that uh, for predictable reasons. We didn't get trained in that. It doesn't come to us in some kind of intuitive sense, then the hard task ahead, the necessary task in front of us is to think of ways to get better, to fill out and ensure we've got a complete checklist. And Lee, that then begs the question, well, how exactly do you strengthen your leadership? We can talk about that for a few minutes if you'd like.
0: Yeah, it's it's probably relevant to talk about that. Um, and certainly, I mean, that's where I would suggest as well, you know, looking in, in my own, uh, you know, characteristics, I'd look at those areas and go, well, how can I improve that? And I'd look at, you know, uh, perhaps books that I could read, people that I could interview and talk with, um, that may have those, those strengths, uh, noticeably, at least in my eyes. Um, now you, you just sort of mentioned a couple of times now, you know, leadership being natural to some people. Is that saying that, that you've seen? Is it is it being proven or is it just a, a sort of an opinion of yours? Because from where I'm standing, I don't believe anyone's naturally born that way. I think perhaps uh, certain elements of their life or their upbringing have allowed them to develop that seemingly natural tendency to be a leader. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's all developed with your
1: thoughts. Yeah, Lee, you <laughs> wisely clarified the language that I was a little bit loose in using. We have a phrase, it's in American English, it's probably in Australian English as well, that somebody just seems to be natural born. And to play that out, to make it more tangible, to ask a question, do we ever see that? Two quick instances come to mind. Uh, one is Nelson Mandela, uh, of South African fame, of course. Uh, I don't think he ever read a book on leadership. I don't think he ever took a program on leadership. But he just seemed to have it. It, it, it it, it was there my other kind of proof of point comes from knowledge i have of a person named fred smith who many years ago was an undergraduate student at one of the um, major universities here in the us Yale university uh, young guy uh, very gifted not clear where he was going to go uh, in life according to the people who knew him there but every said everybody said fred smith he is just he's gifted he's a he's a natural would be the phrase we might use just like somebody's a natural athlete yeah and uh, he wrote famously I think it was a senior thesis after four, his fourth year at Yale University uh, a dissertation or a thesis on how uh, postal package deliveries a little bit uncertain, a little bit slow and how about creating a alternative which of course uh, became Federal Express uh, Fred Smith created it many many years ago still runs it. So here are two instances where people just seem to have it um, almost uh, as a matter of of birthright. But your language is is very significant here because (laughs) I haven't checked this literally, but I think it's going to be true. If you go to the genome website and ask uh, the biologist to help you find the genetics for articulate (laughs) and persuasive speech giving, not there. Or team building, not there. Or being inspirational, not there. So back to your point. It does seem to come out of something about childhood, your parents, your family, your neighborhood, maybe a mm. high school teacher or a coach. So some people have a head start. And Lee, just to make that more tangible to illustrate the point, we bring in about uh, well, we have about 2,000 MBA students in in several different programs. And uh, 15, 20 years ago, we had no leadership course in the curriculum. Today. Uh, An MBA student cannot graduate from the university if they don't take and pass a MBA course in leadership and teamwork. Hmm. And we do that on the premise that some people arrive here. We've had Australian special forces. We've had U.S. soldiers who've served several tours of duty in Afghanistan, led men and women into combat. Uh, We've had people who have led surgical teams. We get a certain number of physicians into our MBA program as well. Uh, so they've had uh, they've had experience to the point they've really had to think about these issues. Others, often on a technical team or a deal team or an engineer, they've uh, had to manage nobody except for themselves. With that said, some people have a head start by virtue of experience, maybe their their neighborhood. But we take the view that everybody can strengthen and improve whatever they bring to the table in the first place. So, and then Lee, that gets back to. I'll actually throw it back as a question to you. You referenced the fact that you've learned yourself by, by reading, by witnessing. You, I'm sure looked at your prime ministers as they come and go. Anything else in your own experience that helps you understand why you and others around you have developed an ability to, to make a difference and to move the needle and move people ahead? What, what do you think? So what was the question? Yeah, they sharpened the question. Uh, what else in your own experience— has helped you developmentally and people around you developmentally become better at politics, uh, hankering a program that you do. What are some of the experiences that have really stood out in your own mind uh, over the years?
0: Well, I think it's the, I mean, going back to your point earlier, which I actually really haven't really thought about before, but, you know, when there is uncertainty or changing times, uh, and your ability to go into that situation and actually have that experience um, in some sort of leadership capacity, whether it be a minor role or, ma- uh, you know, sort of major role, um, I think that practical experience is really where it, you know, you get those deeper lessons, I suppose, um, because it's one thing to know theory, but then it's actually to go out there and practice it. So I would say, um, you know, throughout my upbringing, whether it be uh, in, in primary school when I had, you know, a uh, an assignment due or presentation to give to the class those experiences or uh, where I had to you know lead my friends on a hiking expedition in the mountain um, in certain times like that where there was maybe challenge or uncertainty um, I had to step forward and step up um, and have that sort of experience there that's certainly where I
1: feel the deeper lessons would have come from. That's really interesting and by the way uh, in dialogue with other people along this line I often Uh, hear reference to almost exactly what you've just said. People got out of their comfort zone. They went for a hike in the mountains and were called upon to make a difference. Here's what a lot of thinking and a good bit of academic research has managed to boil down to three avenues, the ways in which leadership is developed Hmm. uh, on top of whatever you might have had from early childhood from your family, friends, neighborhood, or just uh, couples, early elementary school teachers. Number one, the least important of the three avenues, but nonetheless significant, and it's got immediate implications for how people might think about just going ahead on the topic of the day here, is to become, here's my phrasing, a self-directed, lifelong student of leadership. Self-directed, lifelong. And that means nothing more than being very self-conscious about reading books, uh, watching people of prominence succeed, sometimes fail, and taking the world around us as our own personal classroom. We're self-directed. Nobody's teaching us. We are directing the the agenda. So in the U.S., I recommend, and my guess is you've got a couple parallels in Australia, that people pick up the book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. Um, He's a professional writer on leadership. Or uh, Sheryl Sandberg, who's number two at Facebook She's written a great book as well called Lean In, Uh, and you learn a lot from both. You don't learn the whole story. You don't learn behaviorally a whole lot that has immediate implications for you, but you do learn, uh, in the case of Sheryl Sandberg, for example, famously, when you walk into a room and you're one of many people coming into the room, there's an inner circle table and then an outer wall set of chairs take a chair at the table. Don't sit, uh, don't be shy. Step forward is the, is the, uh, the thought there. So that, all that said, that's number one. Number two, and have you and your listeners think about this as I say it, over time, becoming self-conscious at drawing people to you who will serve as coaches or mentors. And we've interviewed dozens and dozens of people. We do a radio program on leadership here in the U.S. We've had many people on the program. A typical question is, uh, do you have a coach? Do you have a mentor? And they say, of course. I've had five or ten people in different ways help me become more of an extrovert. I was too shy. Mm. helped me uh, realize I've got to be more articulate in saying where I want people to go and not just uh, kind of assuming they know where I want to go with them. So number two then is, is again, back to the, in, the individual, you, me, and the people listening, to be self-conscious about bringing people to work with you. Casually is fine, but repeatedly and over many, many years as coaches and mentors. But number three, and you said this directly, unequivocally the most important of the three avenues, all important, but this is the the most important, is to repeatedly do what you've not done before, and then do what the armed forces in many countries call the after-action review, which is if you've been in the mountains hiking with a team and something went not uh, terribly well, to then, as you get back to a lower elevation, to spend time thinking, well, what could we have done differently? What what should we do now going forward? And Lee, Mm -hmm. just to illustrate that point, uh, I did a Book with a, another book with a couple of colleagues uh, two years back now on those who are building China's private companies, not the state-owned enterprises, but the private companies like Alibaba and yeah. Lenovo. And we interviewed the CEOs of both of those. And in particular, the chief executive of Lenovo, the great PC maker, number one in the world these days, uh, he said, when I began many, many years ago trying to make something, I had no idea, zero, how to run a private enterprise, because we, we had no private enterprise, no business schools. There were no Peter Drucker's authors of works on how to manage anything. But he said, every Friday, I sat down with a couple of my top people. We looked back at the week. Initially, it was one person, and now it's over 50,000. And we uh, looked back, decided, hey, uh, our that marketing campaign didn't work. So how can we make a, a better one the next week? So quick recap, number one serving as a self-conscious self-directed lifelong student of leadership number two actively bringing into your orbit people who are willing to coach you or mentor you or serve on your personal board of advisors and then number three most important of all is just repeatedly putting up your hand i'll I'll do it i haven't done that before but i'm going to learn how to do it in the process so lee sorry to go on so long but that's uh, that's a quick, quick quick summary it's really good and, and all this sort of uh,
0: where I take it often is is how we lead our own lives and you know the, the quality of our own life is based on our ability to lead our own lives. and those three points and pretty much everything we've discussed um, is directly relevant to that. you know if we can lead our own lives to the success to what we want to achieve um, using those strategies we'll become not only better leaders of where we want to go in life but better leaders to others around us in those yeah.
1: changing and uncertain times. I think that's (laughs) so well summed up as maybe the most vital point, which is it's up to us individually. We can get help from uh, lots of other sources, but ultimately it's a self-directed enterprise. It's an existential kind of question. I totally agree with what you just said.
0: So talk to us about Go Long. uh, Fascinating book, to the point, uh, very practical and... Yeah, just, it was a really good read. I really enjoyed it. Why long term thinking is your best short term strategy? Um, so, just, just give us a little bit, bit of a background as to why you wrote this. I think you co authored it. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. And just to reference the co authors, which will help us understand why we wrote the book one is the vice chair of, uh, well, this country's, but actually the world's largest executive search firm, Corn Ferry. I know they operate throughout your region. Uh, they help find executives and directors and, and people at various ranks when a organization, a hospital, a foundation, a company, even a government may need them. A uh, second person is a senior partner at the McKinsey & Company. It's a big global strategy consulting firm, so he brought a lot of thinking about how do you craft and execute a strategy. And then a third person is a senior writer at uh, one of our country's largest business magazine, Fortune Magazine. Uh, He's written about people that uh, we do write about in this book for many years. He's a gifted uh, commentator. And here's what uh, led us to put uh, our thinking down in some words. We've become worried, and I'm I'm sure it's true in Australia as well, Mm -hmm. about how the public equity market, companies selling shares to the public through stock exchanges in recent years has become more demanding. The equity market has become more demanding of people that run, uh, you name the company, it could be City, could be HSBC, could be Rio Tinto, that they, uh, uh, or BHP, that they deliver strong returns, predictable results, quarter in, quarter out, certainly one year after another. And that kind of makes sense if you're an investor in the market, or if your retirement monies are with a, an investment company. Uh, most Americans are tied up in something like that, and my guess is the same for you. Uh, we want our, our nest egg, our retirement funds, our, our money for sending children to university to grow predictably over time. That said, uh, several trend lines in the U.S., and I bet they have a parallel in Australia, and uh, nearby as well are very worrisome. Number one, the number of publicly traded companies in the US is down by almost 50%. Mm. So, uh, a while back, uh, there were, we had over 7,000 publicly traded companies. Now we're down to under 4,000. Uh, that's worrisome because we want companies to have the ability to go into the equity market, to raise cash, to expand, to open up operations to build um, build factories. That's where the money comes from. Uh, number two, if you simply walk into the executive suite and you say, hey, how's it going? What's most on your mind? Uh, lots of surveys of this uh, kind are done all the time here. Uh, a, <laughs> a complaint, a kind of a siren song, is that the pressure for short-term results have intensified. Uh, they're a little bit like a vice. They've gotten worse over the last four or five years, and they're coming from the equity market, from equity analysts, from the board of directors, and actually from us. <laughs> mm. In that, in that we just we self-impose that. Uh, then, a related question is: Well, what explains that intensification of short-term demands? Yeah. Many factors account for it, but if you look at actively traded equities on our exchange, or I'm sure it's on your exchange exchanges. Uh, the holding period, the average holding period for actively managed uh, equity investments in publicly traded companies has dropped from something like five years, uh, a quarter century ago, uh, to under one year now. So if you're an equity manager, say, for Fidelity, uh, it's a $5 trillion investment management company based here in Boston, U.S., Uh, you're going to, within 12 months, uh, sell BHP and, and buy Rio Tinto or something to that effect, you're actively trading. And then toss on uh, one more factor, I'll, be, I'll try to be short, uh, short on this one, is the rise of what we call activist investors. I think you've got the same phenomenon, which are uh, typically individuals whose fund, a uh, 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 hedge fund-like, might have somewhere between a, a billion and maybe $15 billion under active management. Uh, they will target a company. This happened at IBM. It's happened at Microsoft. It happened at Motorola uh, and well beyond. They'll take a stake and call up the CEO or send a very pointed letter saying uh, you've got to get better at delivering short-term results. Right. So, so uh, wrap all those ideas up into uh, kind of one statement. Uh, we became worried that this development, which is logical and, uh, not, I don't think it's fully justifiable, but you can understand how it works, that is leading to, for example, cutting research and development investments. It's leading to a short-term sending cash back to investors and not <laughs> working on uh, the, the, the kernel of who you are, of some innovation that you may not see Uh, fleshed out for four or five years now what i've said is is well known certainly in this country and my guess is as well known in your setting as well uh, our challenge the four of us then is what can you do about it and that's why we wrote the book
0: yeah it's interesting um and it's probably a little bit out of that side my realm i suppose Uh, all of what you've just explained but it, it makes sense um what are the impacts i suppose of uh, you know, the publicly trading companies, um, you know, halved in, in, in America, um, probably very similar here. What is the impact that that's having on us? Like, is it is it actually slowing our ability to progress
1: and innovate and, and bring you know, new advancements to the human race? Yeah. Well, boy, you, you've summed it up well there. The, the, the worrisome thing, and there's evidence to support it, is that it is leading to less investment. In longer-term research and development, less innovation of products that we don't know we need now, but we will in five years. Uh, Downward pressure on wages, Uh, and I I think don't want to point fingers too strongly in this direction, but we've uh, definitely seen that. Hmm. We've seen that, uh, especially in in the middle to uh, more entry-level ranks, uh, wage compression, wage depression. Uh, a powerful consequence of this. And thus, in the short term, investors are reaping the benefits. But in the longer term, uh, I think the, the effect of what's happening, nobody's directly individually responsible for this, is to pushing us away from where we want companies, private enterpri- enterprise to be the next five or 10 years.
0: Does it have a part to do with, you know, things are currently really you know changing at a rapid pace? Um, I mean, everywhere we look, things are changing at a rapid pace, whether it be the tech industry or the environment or, you know, just how we're living as a society. It seems to be changing so much. I wonder if that's having an influence on it or is it the other way around? Is it the actual idea that we are all very much short-term focused that we're actually not now benefiting long-term anything?
1: Well, I think we have nicely managed to then get full circle back to where we began. If if the world is uncertain and changing, then the acts of people who are in leadership positions, they take on greater import. They have bigger consequence. we we got to get that more right. And I think it's it's sort of uh, almost a mantra, but it is true that the world, by virtue of global competition, uh, new technologies, disruptive forces of all kinds, including, by the way, that's beginning to affect universities, where we're beginning to ask, do we need classrooms? What about uh, uh, electronically delivered, uh, course content. I know you've got that development in Australia too. All that being said, this is the time we believe that those who are most responsible for, uh, middle to larger companies to take a deep breath, <laughs> step back and take a look at seven people that we chronicled in our book and that we, uh, did not want to be preachy on this. We're not hectoring. Uh, we do raise the questions. And then kind of pragmatically, uh, next issue is, okay, if the short-term tendencies, which lead to lowering of wages, companies sometimes taking unconscionable decisions, good for shareholders, but terrible for consumers, uh, look at the crisis Facebook has managed to get itself into, uh, that we really need to Take a deep breath, step back, and in in our view, one of the best ways to rethink how you're focused on the short term is to look at people who have taken a longer term view of the world and how have they done it and what's the consequence. So we've got just to give you just a a quick thumbnail sketch of one person that we uh, spent time with and we described one chapter of this uh, Go Along book. Uh, in the U.S., there is a uh, essentially a consumer products retail company called CVS, CVS. Uh, unfamiliar probably to most listeners, but here if I want to go get a prescription or pick up uh, uh, candy for a holiday, uh, they have it. It's on every corner. I think it's more than 4,000 stores across uh, the U.S. And uh, back a couple years ago, the chief executive, a guy named Larry Merlo, M-E-R-L-O, said to himself, you know, we are really, we're we're a health store. We, we sell over-the-counter medicines. We have a pharmacy, so prescriptions also. Uh, we want people to buy healthy products. But oddly enough, when you go to check out of the store, right behind the cash register, mm. there's a whole array of tobacco products. So why are we selling tobacco products? Well, to take tobacco out of CVS stores was going to become, and it did become, a $2 billion loss. So back in 2014, uh, CVS, Larry Merlot, chief executive, said, We're going to pull tobacco out of all of our stores forever. Uh, the stock, I think now short term investors, the stock dropped 7% the next day. So the value of the company plummeted. His stock options. Uh, Tanked. Uh, That said, uh, he's never looked back in that the impact of that is to, uh, for people who are interested in in this as a health issue, is to have significantly reduced tobacco sales in the regions where these stores now no longer sell tobacco. But more of a company issue here, Mm. Uh, the uh, CVS recently announced that it's going to merge with a big U.S. health insurer called Aetna. And that would have been inconceivable a couple of years back as a long-term plan had uh, it continued to sell products. Why would Aetna, a life insurance company, be basically aligned with a company that's selling something that (laughs) we know medically? Hmm. All that being said, here's, here's, I think, to wrap this up now, and I'll throw it back at you with a final summary point. To talk about these issues abstractly is is an opening paragraph of of how we need to think about their world, but we believe to move people personally, individually, people who have responsibility, no better way to do it than to let them look at those who have done it, to see people who have tangibly uh, taken a step like this and... Uh, we're not them, but we can learn from what we've done, what they've done, as it bears on what we've done. And I'll just throw a, a final line on this. Another person we profiled is a guy named Paul Pullman, chief executive of Unilever, which no doubt has a huge uh, retail presence. Unilever products in Australia, yeah. A- and a couple of years ago, he decided to move in, in somewhat the same way—not not against tobacco, but for more. Uh, healthful products took a short-term hit, but uh, the company is better for it, and I think the world is is better served by it.
0: Yeah, that's what I liked. I mean, the case studies that you guys present in the book um, really eye-opening um, to show how that long-term thought process or thinking actually has benefited these companies, and actually how we can all actually take. You know, I guess not, number one is to look at other other people who have had success. Um, perhaps that uh, the path that we want to go in, but also how we can all, you know, approach life and approach both professional and uh, career with more of a
1: long-term view. Yeah, you know, it's a great point, and it goes back to an earlier thought or two that we had along the way, which is how do we personally, individually change, evolve what we're doing? We all want to be a better person. Uh, we want to be more mindful, want more family and friends. Uh, actively involved uh, in a kind of a two-way dialogue with us. And we can read about that. we can look at research, and I do that, and I know you do too. Uh, but I think in terms of really in a compelling way, helping us understand maybe in a in a quantum change sense, what we need to redo, maybe we need to hire a trainer if we' if we're looking to improve our, our, our public fitness and health. Uh, in our teaching experience, I've been in lots of classrooms, lots of programs around the world, I've concluded, my colleagues have concluded, no better way to help people make that move to something that is going to be better for them, presumably, and better for the company or enterprise than to look at others who have done it. Uh, We're not them, but we can learn from them unequivocally.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's a great um, many takeouts in the book, you know, looking for uh, continual innovation, uh, looking at the people first uh, and creating that that culture. I really like the idea of developing purpose and making that greater than profits. And I think Um, that one probably touches me the greatest because I think in life, if we can only seek purpose first before all the tangible things that we desire, cars, money, etc., etc um, that will all come. And I think that's uh, where a lot of us do go wrong, including myself. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of really great, um, parallel sort of takeaways that I got from the book as well. So definitely want to. Just encourage you guys listening today um, to go out there and, and pick up a copy and have a read yourself or stick the link in the show notes. So, um, yeah, check it out.
1: And, Lee, and to pick up on, on that word purpose in particular, if there's a central kind of moving concept or an idea that can move people, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head on that one in that we know, and a younger generation of employees is more into this, and certainly in the U.S., than uh, maybe in any other earlier era, or at least recent era, and that is we've got maybe a 30, 35, maybe 40-year work life uh, we're in or ahead of us, and we want to do something with the time we have on Earth that contributes to some transcending purpose. Many ways to define purpose, obviously, But to connect this then back with the thrust of this question about short-term investors and what we call total shareholder return, the mantra in the U.S., extremely strong. I wrote a whole book on this a couple of years ago, that if you're with a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange, the one metric that you're going to be measured by and you're going to lose your job by if you don't achieve it, is what do you return to shareholders in terms of dividends, the cash that gets paid out, and a rise in the share price of your stock? Well, people, and I, I totally understand why, why that's vital, why it's a uh, kind of a, almost a, um, a form of, of exacting discipline. But if you think then about yourself and others working with you, that's probably not going to be a calling in life for them. Like, what's the purpose? Well, uh, if you bring purpose back in that is above and beyond total shareholder return, which means getting beyond that quarterly demand that you provide total shareholder return, then we know ample evidence says this. People are going to work harder with you. They want to spend more time around you. And, if that's only a one percent difference, we probably wouldn't be talking about it. But if you can help people understand that when they're cutting a rock, it's not they're not cutting a rock; they're building the cathedral. It's the cornerstone of the cathedral. Uh, then it, research evidence recurrently has said uh, people quit less often, show you more respect, are more able to get the job done. Uh, you get more not by one percent, but by thirty percent or fifty percent. So. Uh, an underlying argument here is: let's move away from quarterly, shareholder-defined metrics. Very important they are, and let's add in longer-term, and let's add in purpose.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you've got my thoughts up to, to many more tangible thoughts as well. But I mean, real purpose is sustainable, and that's because it offers probably real value, and that's you know what it all comes down to, I guess.
1: It does indeed.
0: Uh, Fantastic. Mate, I've got uh, some quick round questions. Uh, I just want to ask you that I ask all guests on the show, so they are quick round questions. Um, I will start with the first one, which is, do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success?
1: Uh, Very good question. And I think um, as I reflect on that, I do get back to the kind of the leadership checklist Uh, which I personally take very seriously. I I write about it, but it's also got to be very personal. There's a statement, I think it's correct, uh, some research has supported, that nobody's going to want to go with you on a journey. They're not going to want to follow you or maybe even work for you if you are not mentally and physically comfortable. So it's not (laughs) leadership, the last thing it is is about you, it's always about the purpose, the agenda, the the mission. But that said, you do need to have yourself in a place mentally that's focused and mindful, and you need to be physically comfortable as well. You don't have to be uh, a a professional bowler or baseball player in our case, uh, but you do need to be physically and mentally comfortable. That said, Regular exercise is part of my routine. When I've got time to do it, I try to do it as much as possible every day. And then in terms of being mindful, I don't meditate. Uh, I do advocate it. many people we work with do daily meditation. My guess is many of your listeners do as well. But finding ways to ensure that you're in touch with your personal values, uh, that you're mindful of what is important, uh, that you're comfortable with your inner self and outer self working together and not at odds and then I also would add in uh, family and friends another vital aspect of being able to lead anybody need need that world as well so all of those are part of my routine
0: it's great stuff and what advice would you give your 20 year old self
1: uh, it's a great question and in a radio program that I do here in the US on leadership we almost always end with that question as well uh, and it's a great question because now we have a little wisdom, if, we've, if we're if we more than 20, looking back on some great decisions we made and some, certainly in my case, some very suboptimal decisions. But that's the essence of the after-action review. Now, now looking back at a hike in, you know, say, an, in a mountain range, but now looking back on five years if you're 25 or 35 years if you're a good bit further along. And I think the advice— That I hear recurrently from people I talk with uh, in the classroom on this radio program, and then I interview lots of people who are in leadership positions in the private and public sectors and nonprofit in the U.S. is to see the the road ahead as as a road that you want to be on, not because you need a paycheck. Uh, not because you want the status that goes with a particular, uh, a particular assignment or a particular company name or um, enterprise reputation, but you definitely want to do, for the next whatever years it is, something that you really intrinsically want to do. Now, it can take a while to figure that out. That's number one. Number two, uh, stepping forward and increasingly putting your hand up. This is my leadership pitch, I guess, would be a way to put it. Uh, to make a difference in the world, whether it's a neighborhood or a school or a medical center or maybe a nation, uh, put in your hand up. Don't be shy, even if you're temperamentally, personality-wise, a little bit on the shy side. Uh, volunteer. Uh, sometimes we're picked. Sometimes mm. we're looked. Uh, people look past us, but don't be shy about that. Get out there. Get into the game. Make a difference. Yeah, I like this. And what do you define as success? Uh, boy, that is such a, a vital question because if we can't get that one right, we don't know where we're going. <laughs> and I think, I think it comes back to where we began in, in our dialogue, which is a good definition of success. Isn't it making a difference uh, during our, our short visit and being mindful of? In, in an intelligent sense of finding out what's what's important to your family, your friends, your neighborhood, uh, your region, your country, and deciding to help out, to contribute affirmatively to making it a better world. Success, not cash, not fame, not notoriety, but yeah. making a difference. And it really goes back to that value-add notion of leadership. At the end of the day, good question to always keep in mind, what do you wish you could say you've added when you step down?
0: Yeah, it is a good one. And what tool or resource technique do you believe has helped improve your effectiveness or productivity the most?
1: Yeah, I think for me personally, I've been influenced going back to coaches and mentors and individuals I have seen. And I'll I'll make it, uh, I guess, personal and kind of a grand sense here. On two occasions, I was in a large room that welcomed Nelson Mandela on stage. This is obviously some years back. And the second time he appeared on stage, this is after he had stepped down as president of South Africa. uh, As he came on stage, a thousand people in the room, before he said anything, but simply his presence uh, provoked a standing ovation. And uh, it, was, it was remarkable. I've, I've seen very few and maybe no people receive a standing ovation before they performed or before they spoke. Often after a great musical performance at some music hall, we stand and applaud. But this was before we heard the music. And I think for me personally, uh, the exemplar of kind of the, the, the tangible illustration of the difficulty of transcending your personal immediate self-interest for a greater good, nowhere better illustrated or no more meaningfully illustrated than in, in the life that Nelson Mandela led. And uh, 27 years in prison, never gave up the beacon hope of a multiracial democratic South Africa. Without dwelling on that further, but just to, and then to sum that up, uh, I think we all understand who we are, how we want to lead by looking at people who are the kind of people we do admire, and we do ask ourselves, how did they lead? And I've learned from Nelson Mandela and many others uh, the principle, hard to in, uh, apply in practice, but of keeping in mind that it's not about you, it's about the people around you.
0: Yeah, interesting story. What's, if you were to be served your last meal, what meal would you request? <laughs>
1: Uh, very good. I think uh, my last meal. I would say, look, why don't we share it? There are probably some hungry people around, <laughs> and I don't want to get uh, too kind of misty-eyed about that. But uh, again, uh, a, a final, a final dinner, whatever you might call it. Uh, we need, in the summary words of the chief executive of PepsiCo, by the way, uh, America's big. Uh, beverage and, and snack food company, PepsiCo, uh, arch rival of Coca-Cola, of course, uh, products available throughout the world, 234 countries. Uh, the woman who has run that now for more than a decade, uh, Indra Nui, who provided a very nice statement for the back of our book uh, on this very point, said as she has built PepsiCo, she's reminds herself frequently that at the end of her 10-year Leadership role there, uh, she will have memories, she will have uh, a sense of success and contributions. But at the end of that, what she unequivocally, hopefully, will still have, and she does have, is family, friends, and faith. And so if you're going to have your last meal, like to have some friends there, uh, like to have some family members sharing it with you, and like to have a purpose call that faith. That surrounds that final dinner together.
0: And what what food would you choose there, Mike?
1: <laughs> very good on that. Uh, I'm not uh, vegetarians. Vegetarians would be very self conscious about picking out the right stuff. But I would think I would uh, back to this issue of being mindful about yourself and your health. Uh, I would like to think I would like to think that I would have something that is relatively nutritious, even though it's not going to contribute a lot to longer term. This is a very short-term question, uh, but something that kind of uh, sums up the kind of uh, life you've led and the kind of food that you have consumed. So something that is uh, <laughs> uh, health-wise, uh, the, the right combination of products, uh, calorie-wise appropriate, but not over the top, and uh, with that, you can appropriately celebrate the fact that in your leadership calling, whether it's with a big L or a small L, uh, you've made a difference, and this reflects that very point.
0: <laughs> I like it. Uh, and um, what what's an activity
1: that you enjoy the most? For me personally, we all have got a couple of these. I'm a, I, I, I do a lot of outdoor activity, road biking, mountain biking. I've done a lot of hiking, mountaineering. Been in the Himalayas, been in South America, hmm. uh, climbed in in Europe, and that sort of thing. And for me personally, everybody needs something. For many people, mountaineering is maybe the last activity they'd want to engage in, given some of the challenges and sometimes the significant risks. Look what's happening uh, in this very period on Mount Everest as we talk about this. Uh, but that said, for me, uh, the great outdoors at high elevation pretty hard to beat the moment of exhilaration that comes from getting yourself there with a great team to look at some of the most expansive vistas available on earth.
0: Yeah. I like that. Well said. What book or yeah. What book would you give to uh, future generations? One book would you choose to give to
1: future generations? Yeah, I would probably, I would probably not single out, um uh, the the text that we all view as defining our civilization and that let's make those given. so yeah, uh, pe- people need to understand our history. They need to be mindful of whatever religious tradition they're part of. They need to read and and understand all those issues. Uh, but if somebody age make it eighteen, <clears throat> or maybe twenty two they finish university, they want to make a difference. Uh, The two books I do tend to recommend, I've got a list of about 30, (coughs) pardon me, but the two books that I think, for me, best bring out in shortest form, the issues you and I have been talking about are, number one, this book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. It's a a bestseller. It's sold more books, I think, than copies and all other books on leadership ever published. And it makes the point, I'll just sum that the main point up, that the, by looking at people in the private sector, as Jim Collins did in some detail, the people who succeeded in moving their companies in a growth direction, uh, sometimes are twice as large, five times as large at the end of their reign as when they began, are those that are iron discipline in what they do. Uh, they, they have a, a view, they uh, that Jim Collins elsewhere has called it the 20-mile 20 20 march, uh, that they get out there, they do 20 miles a day consistently for years. Mm. But then attached to that is the second and equally important point. in In pushing the company to grow, to expand, they have consistently always seen that as something about the company and not about their own pay, their own welfare, their own Uh, personal glory. So it's all about the mission, and it's not about you. The best in class, according to Jim Collins, are those, what he calls a uh, level five leader, level five disciplined, uh, assiduously disciplined, uh, but always looking at the mission and not any personal uh, gain. The other book mentioned earlier, too, is by the chief operating officer for Facebook, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, who had been Uh, the chief of staff for the secretary or the minister of uh, finance here, the treasury secretary, before she went into the private sector. She's written several books, but the one I think that really stands out for me is called Lean In. And it's addressed in particular to women who have often not been leaning in uh, by sitting in in that inner circle in a room when there are also chairs around the back wall. But that's really a metaphor or maybe just a telling point to make a much broader point, which is that while Jim Collins references the, the the kind of the bigger developments that describe how people would lead a country or a company, Sheryl Sandberg really gets into the micro uh, sort of everyday life things we can do, like raising our hand and speaking out. Hmm. And if we're temperamentally shy, I happen to have that as my own past, uh, just forcing ourselves to lean in. Uh, put your hand up, volunteer, sit at the inner circle. If uh, there's a tough job to do and nobody wants to do it, <laughs> take on that job. So Cheryl Sandberg, yeah. lean in. Jim Collins, good to great.
0: Fantastic, mate, and well, well summarized for us as well. They sound like fantastic books. So I'm going to stick both of those in the show notes, guys, so uh, check it out at the hidden why as well. Mike, what would be one quote or phrase you'd text or tweet to the whole entire world
1: well Lee kind of summing up our time together it would be a a, I'm very academic here a a (laughs) longish tweet that might go more than the limitation of the characters might have to do two or three tweets on this (laughs) but uh, leadership makes a difference it especially makes a difference when the world is changing uh most people aren't born with it. It's something we need to find ways of strengthening in us and I wish there were a leadership pill I could take. I wish there was a silver bullet I could offer. But it's a host of factors beginning with having a vision and strategy and maybe ending with having a the courage, a conviction, and a commitment to the the mission, the country, the company, or the community. and Appreciating that you personally can and will make the difference.
0: That is over the uh, the the what is it the text count, but I'll accept <laughs> that. My. that
1: is, okay, good. That's way over.
0: <laughs> uh, do you believe we all have a hidden why or a purpose?
1: Uh, wait, uh, tell me, uh, Lee. Give me that question again.
0: Do, do you believe we all have a hidden why or a purpose?
1: I think we all create a purpose yeah. and this is this is the civilization that we're part of that's why we have a, a whole range of traditions which is to remind us of what purpose has been in the past that said each of us at some age um, and lifelong need to really kind of think through uh yes uh, people who were in combat in world war ii a wonderful purpose preserved democracy ended uh, fascism in europe uh Uh, We're in a different era. We admire that. I've called it to serve in that way. Of course, we're going to do that. But uh, back to the main point, I think we've all got to come to understand what our purpose should be in the era and at the moment that we are part of.
0: And go out there and create it. Absolutely. What does living life with passion and purpose mean to you?
1: Well, the two things together pretty much sum up our time because... Uh, purpose, let's call that uh, vision and strategy to use a couple of business phrases, gotta know where we're going and why and then if we aren't energized excited, uh, ready to commit yeah. you can believe nobody else is going to have much interest in hanging out with us either
0: yeah.
1: and that's why again in the leadership classroom we spend a lot of time thinking about how do you convey a sense of energy and, and uh excitement about where you're going. That, that's the passion piece. And by the way, Lee, if you get back to the word that we used uh, some time ago, and that is of charisma, uh, it's a term loosely defined. We all kind of know when we see it, even if it's hard to put words on it. Uh, isn't that really coming down to describing somebody who just seems by virtue of their, the passion in their eyes or in their voice to getting, uh, they get you excited to take that long journey with them, uh, on to some destination you both believe in. Mm. So, knowing where you're going, that's the purpose piece, and then getting people excited, inspired, is certainly the passion piece. That the two go together, got to have them both.
0: Yeah, very well put. I love that. Uh, and the final question, Mike, is what do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do?
1: You know, I think very important to this is being mindful of, of understanding ourselves. If we can't work that out, we're not going to be able to help other people understand where they want to go. And I've been like you and everybody else. That's, that's a lifelong journey I've been on. Uh, but in in recent years, as I've become more involved directly in thinking about leadership, writing about leadership, observing leadership, uh, just as an example, I went down to Chile a couple of years ago to take a detailed look at the people that led the rescue of those 33 trapped miners. Yeah. So spent spent time with uh, those that were there, trying to <clears throat> reconstruct uh, what was their thinking. How did they How did they do it? And at the end of that particular look, but that's symptomatic of many other agendas like that that I've been involved in. I'm thinking to myself, Whoa, we got 33 miners who are alive today. They're with their families who, without the leadership of the minister of mines in Chile—this is back in 2011—and then the backing of the president, and the role of this shift supervisor, the guy that was trapped with the miners who helped them stay mm. uh, fit enough to be rescued a couple months after they were trapped, without their leadership, those 33 families uh, would have gone all gone to uh, a funeral for their loved one. Uh, it's a little bit over the top by way of illustration, but it does get to the point that the world runs on uh, the high octane fuel of people deciding they can make a difference call that leadership or call it by some other name i think we know what it is and that's the, the that's the agency that we all have and that's in recent years been uh, a good bit of what i'm most concerned about
0: yeah that's really good i, I love all your stories mike and um how you explained everything so thoroughly uh, it really puts it um well into my imagination as well so thank you for sharing and uh, look, this has been a fantastic uh, interview. I've got a couple of pages myself of notes. I've been viciously writing throughout it, so thank you for all you've shared. You've a lot of wisdom, experience, and knowledge there as well. So, Mike, you, um, how can best uh, people reach you?
1: Uh, a couple of ways to do it. Uh, for the uh, the book, uh, Go long. that's uh, on Amazon. I presume that uh, yeah. coming from Australia, people can readily ex- access it there. It's a thin paperback. It's about 35,000 words, about a third the length of normal books. So it's a fairly quick read. For more general access to me, it's just U.S. E.E.M. is the last name. If you search that in Wharton, W-H-A-R-T-O-N, I will pop up. I've got a lot of stuff on the Web in and around this broader terrain, Lee, that we've been talking about. Uh, What exactly is leadership, how to get more of it and where does it come from?
0: Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, As you can probably tell, I am shutting down. It's uh, coming close to my bedtime here. (laughs) It's the start of your day. So I have taken up much longer of your time today uh, than we planned, but uh, yeah, very well worth the while. So thank you for coming on and sharing.
1: All right, Lee. Well, thank you for having me on your program. I uh, thrived on the discussion and I really appreciate being uh, with you for the last hour.
0: It's been amazing. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwide.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there, um, and anything else, really, that you like, to purchase through Amazon. So use that link and helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out again at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there, breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so, you will discover your hidden white. This is the Hidden white. My name is Lee Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.